0: Hello and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we featured a conversation between Viet Thanh Nguyen, Cao Kalia Yang, and Vu Tran. This week, we are pleased to present Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award finalist, Leila Lalami, who chats with American Writers Museum president, Carrie Cranston, about her forthcoming book, Conditional Citizens. This conversation was originally recorded virtually via Zoom. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. I'm just going to say hello. Uh, My name is Kerry Cranston. I'm the president here at the American Writers Museum. Tonight, I'm excited that I have a chance to interview a writer of great prominence, um, who is also one of the 30 featured writers in our exhibit, Dr. Layla Olame. Dr. Olame is currently a professor of creative writing at the University of California at Riverside and holds a PhD in linguistics from USC. She's also well known for essays and opinion pieces that appeared in newspapers from the Los Angeles Times to the New York Times, or in publications from The Nation to Harper's. On top of all that, she's written four novels, uh, Dangerous Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, Secret Sons, The Moore's Account, which won the American Book Award, the Arab American Book Award, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, as well as being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And most recently, The Other Americans, which was one of Time Magazine's most important books of 2019 and was shortlisted for the National Book Award. And was just released in paperback if you're looking for something to read while you're trapped in quarantine. Her upcoming book is a work of nonfiction entitled Conditional Citizens, which releases in September Having had a chance to read it in advance, I encourage everyone uh, watching to pre-order a copy tonight. It's a fascinating mix of memoir, journalism, historical analysis, and cultural criticism all rolled up into one. It's a book that really explores the notion of what it means to be a citizen in the United States and how greatly that varies depending on issues of race, class, gender, and more. So with that being said, Layla, I want to welcome you in spirit to the American Writers Museum, and thank you for joining us online tonight.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, I think I'd just like to start with the idea of asking you about what it means uh, by what you mean by the notion of conditional citizen. And when you started to recognize this notion that the nature of citizenship, citizenship varies for people, depending on their circumstances, you know, whether it's by race or faith or gender or class.
1: Um, I would say that there's two. Um, two ways in which that sort of. Uh, uh, experience sort of coalesced for me. one is just sort of a theoretical way, which is just by reading long before I' even set foot in the United States, I had read about its history and its culture, and so I was well aware of some you know aspects of its history that made citizenship sort of a tiered system whose benefits are available to a certain class of individuals and not to others. But the second part of it is a more direct experience for me uh, that uh, that came out of just observing or experiencing how Americans are treated in the public sphere over the last 20 years. So the best example I can give that is relevant to this moment that we're in is, so I live in California, and... uh, (laughs) And so we're all under stay at home orders. And the idea is that we're all staying home to keep everyone else safe. Um, And so our governor has imposed public health orders on everyone. And then this past weekend, uh, he closed the beaches in Orange County because people were not social distancing when the beaches had reopened. And as a result of that, there were um, protests. Uh, and those protestants then moved to Sacramento, which is the Capitol. And they, I don't know if you saw videos of this, but you had like, these masses of people, not social distancing, not staying the six feet <laughs> <laughs> apart and not wearing masks and crowding on the steps of the Capitol and coming right up to the cops um, and yelling in their faces and pushing and shoving and, under normal circumstances, you might in that would be that would fall under free speech. But we are in a pandemic, and any kind of physical um, uh, uh, presence next to somebody else endangers their lives and endangers the lives of these cops as well. And the reactions of those cops was to just basically stand there and put up with all of this. And you have to imagine what would have happened if these crowds, which are mostly white, had actually been mostly black or mostly brown people, how the cops might have reacted. And that comes to the idea of who gets to enjoy not just the full um, rights of citizenships, but a lot of privileges therein. And so that would be one way in which you could um, sort of explain this concept of conditional citizenship. Now, I'm an immigrant, uh, and the book begins with my becoming a citizen in the year 2000. And so over the last 20 years, I've had a number of occasions in which I've observed this dynamic. Yeah. And um, in the book, I talk about examples like the one I just mentioned, which is sort of a public example that any of us can observe. And then I talk about sort of more private ones that I've experienced.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting the way you interface your personal experience with these larger topics. Um, it's It feels like a memoir at certain points, and then you, you bring it into this larger context. Um, it, along with that, in, in the book, you talk about yourself being gray and living within gray spaces. Um, you write at one point, every time the gray zone recedes, tribalism and sectarianism gain ground. Can you talk about what you mean by, by the gray?
1: So the idea for that actually came from, um Uh, a few years ago when um, the group known as ISIS had staged um, a terrorist attack in Paris. And in preparation for that, they had put out uh, a document. People might be surprised to know that ISIS has a PR department. And one of the things that they do is put out this magazine. And in the magazine, they were talking about um their views of the world and they divide the world into two camps their camp which is the camp of isis and then the camp of everyone else uh who is on the side of people like george w bush and so on and so forth the camp of the crusaders and then the people who are do not belong to either of these camps are called the grayish or the grayish hypocrites And if you pause for one moment and think about what that view of the world means, it's a very uh, tribalistic views of the world in which everything is either black or white. You're either with us or you're against us, as George W. Bush so famously said, and uh, as they were saying as well. And the argument that I'm making is that most of us actually are in that gray zone where we don't want to take sides. We don't see the world in these Uh, in colors that are black and white. Um, And in terms of um, citizenship itself, in a way, anybody who is in the gray zone of citizenship then becomes subject to having their rights questioned or to having their uh, liberties questioned. So if you're an immigrant, for example, the way that this happens is you're expected to sort of perform a certain gratitude toward the United States for being the country that welcomed you and that gave you a home and gave you a number of opportunities. Um, And any sort of uh, refusal to abide by, by that sort of philosophy or any criticism of that is then interpreted as ingratitude, and is interpreted as um, as a betrayal, uh, and so so that's what I mean when I talk about the grayish. Is that if you are in a gray zone, then then even your rights can become uh, subject to debate. I hope I've explained that correctly.
0: <laughs> no, I think that, that's that's great. I mean, and as I said, it's it's a very interesting component of the book. The way that you explore these areas both in relationship to uh what's going on today things that have happened in the past and then like i said your personal experience um it, it, this idea that your personal experience kind of wraps each of the chapters and each of the areas that you're looking at so you each one kind of takes one personal memory and kind of uses it as a as a wrap whether it's about faith or assimilation um and um so i'm kind of curious in the writing of this book um, as you were combining your personal experience with these larger topics um, and doing obviously a lot of research and, and analysis, uh, were you finding that you were picking these personal mem- memories based on the research that you did, or were you picking them, ba- or were you doing the research based on your personal experience?
1: The second. So basically, what would often happen is I would have an experience. So, for example, being uh, on interstate. 10 in West Texas and being stopped by border patrol and being asked, are you a citizen? Many people are surprised to hear that there are border checkpoints scattered across the United States. um, They're within the borders of the United States and where you get asked about your citizenship. Now, most of us don't carry proof of citizenship with us, right? Unless you have a birth certificate or a passport with you, you have no way of proving that you are a U.S. citizen. And so there's a lot of, discretionary power that is given to Border Patrol officers. Um, So that happened to me and and I got stopped and I was asked and then I I was let go. Uh, But then I started thinking, well, why do we have these checkpoints? And where did they come from? And how long have they been around? And uh, what happens at them? And how are the towns where they are where they are located affected by them? And that gave rise to a whole essay, kind of exploring the notion of borders within the United States, and then comparing that with how I experienced borders in my own uh, uh, native country, so in Morocco, and like how borders, even in Morocco, kind of um, what border walls were built. So it's it's. It starts first with the, with the experience and then it kind of leads to this um, reflection and that leads me to research and to analysis. Uh, gotcha. to yeah.
0: And you you were talking about the borders a little bit um, there and, and you talk about it obviously in depth in that chapter. And I'm kind of curious, um, you talk about how both in Morocco and in the United States, we've moved from this idea of borders that were more porous or were very theoretical in construct to being obviously very physical. You talk about a, a city in Northern Morocco um, that that went from being something you just drove into that was part of Spain, right? And that suddenly it suddenly has walls and a moat um, the same mm-hmm. way that that we seem to be approaching our Southern border. Yeah. Um, I'm curious when you look at it in the context of today with the global pandemic, um, you know, How do you think that this nature of people looking at borders differently now than maybe they did 20 years ago um, affects how we look at issues like this pandemic?
1: Well, I think it's a question of um, how much are people paying attention to what happens at the border. One of the things that I explain in the essay is that uh, and for some reason, a number of people are surprised to hear that the first border wall was constructed under the Clinton administration. And, was, and then it, it was expanded by the George W. Bush administration and then by the Barack Obama administration and then the Trump administration. So the Trump and border wall sort of uh, rhetoric, all of that belongs in a long line. It's just that with the president's very vulgar way of speaking, yeah. It really brings to the, to, the, to the forefront these ideas about who we are and what we are trying to separate from the others, quote-unquote. Um, with the pandemic, what's been interesting is that the flow of migration has stopped. Now, people have always migrated, always throughout human history. People move because they are looking for opportunity, or they are looking for safety, or they're trying to reunite with family members. So there's push and pull factors, and it works the same way in every country, under every climate, and under every political um, um, system. Now, with the pandemic, it has forced everyone to stay in place, and that is true also of, of uh, migrants. They are staying in place or returning home. So I don't know if you uh heard about this but like in, in India they had something like many, many millions of migrant workers yeah. being forced to uh move back home. And that was one of the largest migratory movements that India has had in the last half century. So it's, it's kind of interesting in terms of, like, thinking through the border and why we bother having it, right? Because nobody's coming here. There's a pandemic. That's because the reason to move anywhere has stopped. Everybody's afraid and is sheltering in place in their home countries. And so instead, what you see is the appearance of virtual walls uh, where you have things like um, not processing visa applications, not uh, basically curtailing the number of categories under which somebody can obtain a green card, things like that. So there's, there's definitely um, a rise in like the the erection of virtual walls. And then I think once we go back to normal, whatever normal looks like, I think that that's actually going to be expanded where we're going to move away from focusing so much on physical barriers and basically move into a whole system of, of virtual barriers, um, and I think this administration is very much eager to do that, um, as is evidenced by their changes to immigration laws or their attempted changes to immigration laws already.
0: Right. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, you you have a background in in linguistics, obviously. Um, and uh, I'm kind of curious when you look at this book. Do you feel like that played a part in what you were analyzing? I mean, do you take that as a way of looking at things? Because obviously there's this notion of what people think of when they say the word citizen versus what the truth is behind the word. Yeah. So how, how does that play into what you do?
1: Absolutely. It plays a lot. I think that and you'll notice that a number of these essays begin on reflecting about how something was said or, or unpacking what a particular word means. And definitely the word citizen um, it, it's it's one of those words that, again, is used in, it, to mean very different things um, and definitely deserves to be unpacked as it does in this book. So you'll hear sometimes people saying, you know, I have a citizen. I, I'm a citizen. I have rights, right? Mm-hmm. So citizenship is basically the right to have rights. Um, and... When you then think about how we talk about it, like who gets to be American or who can call themselves American and who must hyphenate their Americanness, right? So, um, say for example, you're African American or Native American, but who gets to just be American to cool? Um, there's all sorts of things like that around the notion of Americanness that that I was interested in unpacking in this book. So, okay.
0: um, yeah, I was kind of curious about the connection between uh, your last novel, The Other Americans, and this book. Uh, I interviewed you last September about the book, and obviously there's an overlap here. You you were looking at nine characters or nine voices in this very complicated novel, um, and all of them coming from the notion of citizenship and, and their belonging in this country um, from different perspectives. So was that a driving force in getting you to write this book? Um, was this something you wanted to write for a while? What was the the force behind it?
1: No, it's something that I've been working on on the side for many years. And it just, what happened was once I was done with the novel, I had a bit of time on my hands and I just basically put, put this book together. The two projects don't actually, in my mind, are not connected, but Mm -hmm. that's because consciously I'm not trying to draw a connection between the two, um, With the other Americans, which is out in paperback now. Yep. (laughs) Um, This one is, to me, a novel about um, our notion of of America as told through nine different voices. So it's a, a book about family and it's a book about community. But this one is, I would say... This is a critique and a memoir, so they're very different. So in in writing a novel, it's more of an approach of uh, trying to embody particular voices without judging them. Whereas in the nonfiction book, it's more a work of uh, memoir and cultural criticism than it is uh, anything else. Um, I didn't set out to connect them in any way, but I think in some sense they reflect long-standing interests that I've had, I'm sure. Um, and with this one, I definitely have been thinking about citizenship for many, many years and wrote bits and pieces of the book over the last 10 years. And so now I just kind of put it together uh, in the last couple of
0: years. Okay. Um, I want to open it up to questions in a second, so I'm going to encourage people, if they haven't submitted their question, to do so. Um, right, so I'll ask just kind of one more Um and and that is at at near you know a certain point in the book you you have a chapter uh, pulling from Frederick Douglass uh, do not despair of this country mm-hmm. from his famous speech um on the July 4th and the meaning of the July 4th for the for the negro um and you say at one point in that chapter despair is never without consequence it is a gift of the status quo um which i think is a great line um and i'm kind of curious uh when you are thinking about that this is obviously a point at which you're you're trying i think is as happens in the other americans where, where you give us some sense of hope on something that feels very hopeless at points um so can you talk a little bit about you know why douglas for that um and and also you know what your notions are about how people can avoid the despair component or why they should avoid the despair component
1: I mean, I think it makes sense. I think it's it's interesting to me that the more hopeful book is the fiction. <laughs> it's the novel. But in terms of, of this book and that particular last chapter, one of the things that I try to remember, um, particularly when we go through uh, moments of great national despair, like right now would be one such moment. We are all stuck at home and no matter how much, you love your family and you enjoy being with them, it would be oh so nice <laughs> to be able to, you know, go out and, 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 you know, I don't know, get a haircut or go to a restaurant or whatever. So it really feels there is such a great deal of uncertainty right now. And there is such a lack of national leadership. In fact, it's it's disastrous, really, that it's, it's very easy to feel you know, just despair, you know, things are never going to get better. And, you know, what is going to happen to the workers who are out of jobs? What is going to happen to our civil rights if we get used to the idea that we never go anywhere? What is going to happen to our voting? Are we going to be able to vote safely? Are votes going to be counted or not counted? You know, there's a great deal of anxiety, and some of that has to do with the nation itself and its future. And one of the things that I have always found inspiring, is that when I read writers like James Baldwin, I feel that those people persevered through some of the worst times that this country has gone through, and yet they continued working and they continued advocating for what they felt was right. And Frederick Douglass, the reason that he comes up in that last essay is because that line is taken from his famous speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July. And when I think that that he wrote this and still said not to despair, then I feel like what right do I have to despair if people went through something as ugly as what, what he had gone through and came out saying do not despair. So I, I for me, it's kind of... Um, inspiring and also it's a reason to get up in the morning i mean if we give up what is the point <laughs> what is the point of even get, getting up in the morning you have to have that hope you have to have the belief that through action uh, and through work that things can get better um yeah. that if you just give up and and don't do anything that things will surely get worse but through action things might get better and a little bit better for the next generation
0: Layla, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this, and to our audience, thank you for being so involved tonight.
1: Thank you very much for having me. All right.
0: Thanks, everyone. Have a great night.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation with graphic novelist Ngozi Ukazu about her hit series, Check, Please. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.